All right. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Can Do Podcast. Thank you so much for being or listening wherever you may be. Today we have another special guest with us. Really excited to talk to her and learn more about her story, uh, Dr. Maureen Michelle Peterson. She is on the show with us today. And let me just tell you a little bit about her. For those who are watching the video, you can already see her. Uh, and then uh, we'll dive into the discussion. So uh, Dr. Maureen is an award-winning leader, life coach, author, and physician. As a general pediatrician and allergist, immunologist, she has spent her career caring for patients with a variety of acute and chronic health problems. She is a military veteran. Thank you so much, by the way, Dr. Maureen, for your service, and has enjoyed using her storytelling talent to teach young physicians the art of medicine. She's an accomplished life coach who helps parents of chronically ill children regain control of their lives and thrive at fulfillment. Maureen is the mother of three amazing children and has firsthand experience with being a parent of a child with long-term health issues. Maureen enjoys jumping rope, hiking, and playtime with her two extraordinary four-legged sidekicks. <laughs> Maureen, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me this time to share my story with your audience. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking before we hit the record button. There are so many different paths that we can take and um, there's so much that I want to be able to to learn and hear from you. You know, I'm curious. We have a uh, four leg four legged sidekick as well. His name is Teddy, and I've been training for a marathon, uh, Doctor Marine. And so he's been going on runs with me, but he always gets upset when I have to drop him back off at the house. Are your dogs like that too? Like if you're jumping rope and things like that, if they're not included, are they are they giving you attitude as well? Oh, for sure. And especially <laughs> when I'm recording podcasts, they cannot be in the room. So thank goodness, like I have enough space in the house that I can go put them away into a room so you don't hear them whining throughout the podcast episode. But oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they definitely are a blessing. Well, there's yes. there's a lot I want to talk about. I'm curious, can you share your story with how did you get into medicine? And yeah, take a couple of minutes and, and talk to us about that and how it's gotten you to this point in your life as a um, physician, life coach and uh, author and just so many other things. Yeah, sure. So I, in growing up, really had two goals. I had the goal to be a mom and the goal to be a physician. And that physician goal, you know, would come out all the time when I was a kid, like all the neighbor kids would come over and I would use little candies to administer <laughs> medicine to each of them. Uh, so it was throughout my entire life that I wanted to be a mom and a doctor. And I was very fortunate to have both of those goals um, become a reality when I was in residency for pediatrics, um, my daughter, who was my second child, was an infant at the time and was diagnosed with pediatric neuroblastoma, which is a type of cancer. Hmm. She 
was found to have a lump in her belly. And that's kind of what started the whole cancer journey for her. And when that happened, my life kind of came crumbling down. Um, the I've had people ask, you know, oh, was it easier because you were a doctor and you knew what that cancer road was going to look like? And my response to it was, um, no, that's what made it scary because I knew exactly what that cancer road looked like because I had taken care of patients who had the same type of cancer my daughter did. So during that time, I kind of went into kind of a dark place because my mind was very overwhelmed with everything that was on my plate on being a mom to this kid who had health issues and trying to be a doctor and trying to be a human. Um, and I don't know if I did it very well, but with time, uh, things did get better. And as we got farther away from her diagnosis and going through chemo and surgeries and the whole works, that I felt like, okay, like I'm back on track now. And then when she turned 12, I got to be the physician to diagnose her with type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that was another huge wake-up call that my world came crashing in again. I knew what that dark place felt like from before when she was an infant, and I didn't want to go back there. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of books to try to just get my mind under control and not be so driven by fear and anxiety and guilt. Um, and I found coaching in those podcasts. The things got better. Um, and I decided to become a certified life coach um, to help with mentoring physicians that I was working with at the hospital. And it was really when I learned the tools of coaching and was applying them in clinic to patients that I realized how great I could be as a coach and share the tools that I had learned to make those parents' lives a little bit easier than what I experienced because of being able to teach them about courage to advocate and being able to teach them about how to be resilient. Um, and not only was I seeing it was changing parents, but it was changing the entire dynamic of the family because if you take care of yourself, you're going to influence your kids too because they're seeing what you're doing and they will model that behavior. So it was a 
um, a, a long journey um, from, you know, thinking, oh, I was on top of the world with being um, a mom and a doctor and I have achieved my life goals to then like, oh boy, this mm -hmm. is, this can't be happening again. Um, but looking back, like I feel very fortunate that those experiences happened because I know I'm a better mom, a better doctor, all from going through those challenges. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's a lot to unpack. My, my first follow-up question, where do these goals come from? You mentioned two goals, being a wife and then being a doctor. Was that from your parents? Was that from some other life experience? Can you expound on, upon that, where they oh, came from? Oh, that, that's a great question. And uh, it was just an, it, I feel like I was born with it, quite honestly. And okay. that's kind of a cop-out answer. But the, <laughs> okay. the reason I say that is, <clears throat> I mean, I can remember as a six, seven-year-old kid, playing the game of life where yeah. you have the little pegs in the car. And mm -hmm. I can remember like wanting more pegs in my car to represent the kids I was going to have. And then like hoping I was going to get the doctor occupation card. So it was <laughs> from a very, very young age. Um, and my, my parents are, not physicians. Um, I did come from a big family. Um, I was one of five kids. And so maybe the kind of maternal instinct came from my parents and being in a large family. But I, I don't, I don't know where exactly it came from. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. That's awesome. I remember playing the game of life as well. That was a really fun game too, by the way. Life, Monopoly, Uno. Yes, we used to play those games all the time. So did you get married before you became a physician? Which which one of those goals did you accomplish first? Yeah, in um in medical school and then nice. graduated medical school, um, pregnant with my first child. Nice. Yeah. You mentioned guilt. Walk us through that. I have a, an assumption in my mind about why you would feel that way, but I want to hear from you. Why, why did you feel like you had so much guilt or why were you experiencing so much guilt when your daughter, um, you know, was diagnosed with the first condition? Yeah, I, I think it is a natural like parent emotion to have when your kid mm -hmm. is diagnosed with something that you feel like oh my gosh, what did I do to make this happen to her? Because at the time when she had neuroblastoma, she was six months old. And mm. so it was, I mean, I was a healthy person, but it doesn't stop you from having all of these thoughts of, was it something I ate when I was pregnant? Was it something that... I was exposed to in the hospital setting that caused this to happen to her. And um, the, the, as a parent, you never want your kid to be sick. And so it just becomes this guilt that 
I did something or I caused this in some way because there's no way the universe would let a six-month-old go through this. So it must be because of mm. something I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that that was a dark place and a dark time for you. <clears throat> you read books and listened to podcasts and things like that. What were some of those thoughts or tools, uh, recommendations, things like that, that, that helped you through that? Um, you know, how, how long were you in that dark place and how were you able to pull out of it? Yeah. So I will say, you know, just kind of breaking the story up into kind of two kind of errors, um, eras, I should say, not errors, but um, (laughs) the, um, the first section of the story, when uh, my daughter was an infant, I um, struggled because I felt like, number one, I could never ask for help. And Mm. that struggle came because I had this belief that if I asked for help, it meant I was failing as a mom. And I, that was a goal that I had since as long as I can remember, like this was not something I was going to fail at. So having that inability to ask for help really caused problems during that time. But, and so that kind of dark place that I describe, um, came because, I mean, you're, you're a parent with an infant who has cancer and they're getting poked and prodded and you can't do anything about it. And, um, the, uh, all the thoughts that go in your head, like, I don't want her to have to go through this. Is she going to make it? Um, how, how am I going to tell my family or tell my spouse if she does pass away? Like, how does that conversation go? And your mind just kind of goes out of control. The, I was kind of lucky during that time to be a doctor because my friends were my colleagues and uh, they were onto me about when I said, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need any help. Like they were on to me and knew that wasn't the real case. So the, um, I, I, looking back, like during that time, there wasn't anything formal that I did. It was mainly, um, me being onto myself and having friends who knew a lot about mental health. And um, later when it was happening again, um, I was wiser and um, wiser from my previous experience, but also just wiser in knowing about mental health, knowing about um, resources available to people and knowing how powerful your mind is with being able to solve any problem and you can really live a joyful life if you 
kind of calm your brain down. And Mm -hmm. so it was really learning how to be conscious of all of these thoughts that were being generated by my brain. Um, And I wasn't even aware of them at first, but they were like driving this car um, of fear. And I needed to calm it down so that I could take over and be in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. And learning how to do that really came during the second era of my kind of journey. I'm curious how, give us some, or give me some, um, some more feedback. I, I want to hear more about how you were able to calm the mind. So we were talking beforehand. Um, I, I preach full time. I'm a Christian. So that's my, that's my worldview. And um, last year I started doing a lot more studying Dr. Marina and worry. Uh, the Bible actually yes. says a lot about worry. Jesus said a lot about worry. And I found some other books too. Uh, Dale Carnegie has a great book from, the mid 1900s, how to stop worrying and start living. Excellent book, one of my favorite books. Now, I found another doctor, Doctor David Seabury. Um, I don't know, 1930s or 40s. Um, he's got an excellent book. It's the title is called "How to Worry Successfully." <laughs> I was like, yeah, this sounds like a great book. I've just been like collecting different books and things like that. So, and I, it's interesting, even the language, like you said, you weren't conscious of some of these thoughts and worries, but, um, you know, the, the, the thoughts and things like that were kind of driving. And then you kind of took the, took the will. What, what were some of the tools or tactics, um, that helped you during this time, uh, to calm the mind? And I'm sure you're sharing some of the, some of these things as well, um, as you coach, uh, parents or physicians or even clients. Or uh, patients, rather. Yeah. And I love what you brought up about all the different books out there about uh, worrying. And, you know, um, I've had people say to me, well, worrying has helped me because it motivates Mm. me to get Mm. something done. And Mm. um, I, I will say that can be very true. Um, emotions like worry are important because um, it can allow us to to really understand what's happening in the present moment. That we get into trouble when the we um, languish in the emotion. And I'll give you an analogy of what I'm talking about. You know, if you have a hot stove and um, you put your hand on that, that hot stove, you want to feel pain because that pain is going to pull your hand off the stove. Um, the, what you don't want to happen is to keep your hand on that hot stove because that does nobody any good. (laughs) You wind up with a horribly burnt hand. And so emotions work the same way. You know, feeling worry for a moment or a, a little bit of time is okay, but you have to process it and not sit there and 
swim in it and allow it to kind of drive your vehicle in life. And um, so you had asked, though, like, what is kind of a tool to like, figure that out and figure out, are you using worry to become aware of, hey, I need to do something to, to kind of get motivated and use it in a positive way? Or are you sitting there like just swimming in worry and it's really like keeping your hand on that hot stove? Mm-hmm. The um, The thing I would say is the very first step is journaling that people don't realize how many thoughts go in their head throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. But when you give yourself just a few minutes every day, and a blank sheet of paper and a pen or pencil, and just write everything that comes to mind, that it allows your brain a little bit of space to kind of get all those thoughts out of your head for a minute. But the other really nice part about journaling is once they're on paper, you can see the thoughts that are in your head and become a little more objective about them rather than sitting there having them spin in your head and you're not making any progress because your hand's still on the stove. (laughs) Yeah. And that's interesting too, because I think that's what Dr. David Seabury was talking about. Worry can be an indicator. Okay. Something needs to be addressed. Right. Um, and there, I think there's a distinction as well between like worry versus concern. Yep. We're, we're not naive about what's actually happening. We have to face reality. That's one of the big things I've been just teaching and things like that with respect to suffering, where we can't deny what's happening right in front of us either. Uh, but, but how we respond to that. There's another book I was listening to earlier this year to look it up. I believe it's called The Stress Prescription. And I liked what the author had mentioned there about this idea of catch and release. And she was talking about there the idea of, you know, catching some of those thoughts and then releasing them. Something I think similar to what you're saying. And one of the things I like to teach, you know, from the scriptures too, is um, 1 Peter 5, verse 8, casting all your cares to him because he cares for you. And that's that idea again of, of catch and release. So, yeah, worry is something that it can it can push us or it can motivate us, or if not careful, it can, it can overwhelm us. And then that's yes. when a lot of the suffering, I think, maybe begins even more when we find ourselves kind of drowning with that. It's also interesting, too, what you just said. I'm training for a marathon. Today was a tough day. The day of this recording, I was supposed to run 16 miles. I got to 13. I got to revamp a couple of things. I did 15 last week. But it is amazing. Uh, just the thoughts that just kind of flow through your head, just running, whether I'm listening to music or not. And so that's one of the things I'm trying to work on too. Just, um, oh, okay. Uh, let these thoughts run through my head and uh, I don't have to act on them. Um, I can see them for what they are. Uh, maybe there's some things that are kind of coming up to the top. That's kind of interesting. I wonder where that came from. And I don't know if you've experienced that, but I think a lot of people do like, what? where did this come from? 
have no idea yes. where this come from came from. And so right. it's just kind of like kind of like letting them all out and just seeing what happens with that. So yeah. um, thank you, you for you sharing know, that. Go ahead. Yeah, a, a very common um, one that even just came up when you just were talking about the marathon training is judgment versus discernment. And mm. we often find ourselves in this whole process of being worried and overwhelmed that we start judging ourselves like, I I can't do this. I'm a terrible mom because I didn't do X, Y, or Z. And judging ourselves has zero benefit to it. Um, the Now, what you also did when you were talking about the marathon is <laughs> discernment, which mm. is an important difference than judgment. Discernment is, oh, I didn't do as well as I thought I could today. So I really need to like revamp like when I am running on when I, you know, take some carbs so I don't run out of energy during my run. That's discernment. Um, mm. And the those two things, understanding the difference between those two is really something very helpful to parents um, because yeah. We beat ourselves up all the time. And mm -hmm. we're, regardless if you're a parent who has a kid with health issues or not, you're going to make mistakes because this is life and parenting mm -hmm. doesn't come with a manual. So the <laughs> making a mistake is okay. Like give yourself some grace let it go like the catch and release thing that you were talking about and then mm -hmm. learn from it and do better next time. So add mm -hmm. that discernment piece into it rather than the judgment part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Thank you so much. And um, <clears throat> I see the coaching coming out. This is great. Yeah. The judgment <laughs> versus uh, discernment. See, you, uh, you didn't even no know that you were going to get coached about what you said about your marathon. <laughs> no, this is great. Well, you know, I'll tell you this too, because what you're saying is so true. So this is my first marathon. Um, going back to like high school, my junior and junior year in high school, Dr. Not Dr. Uh, Mr. Um, Elliot was my English teacher. And uh, he, he, would, he said one time, you know, Ben, when you came into the class, I got moved to his class. He said, you didn't, you never said a word. Now you won't shut up. He's like, be quiet. So I guess I got really comfortable and started talking. But one of the exercises we did was uh, a journal, kind of what you talked about. I still have that. And part of the exercise was uh, write down 25 things you want to do. So very much like you with, you know, getting married, getting married was yeah. on my list. Being a doctor was not on my list, but I'm pretty sure Forrest Gump had a big impact and I was running cross country. So running and finishing a marathon was on my list. I didn't keep, I didn't keep up with that list, but I've done half marathons and five K's and 10 K's. And I said, you know, I need to, I, I need to run this marathon. And so what you just said, though, I think is so important for the audience because the, the judgment part can come in. And, and I did have some of those thoughts, too, where it's like, man, I didn't, I, you know, I'm three miles off. I just wasn't feeling it. You know, did I quit too early? 
uh, and all of those things. And so shifting that to discernment uh, is, is a great thing for all of us to consider. So thank you for that. Yeah. You know, and the, the other thing that I would say is very helpful um, is a daily gratitude practice. So mm -hmm. I, on an everyday basis, journal and then write three things that I'm specifically grateful for. And so it can't be, I'm grateful for my kids. It needs to be specific. Like, I'm grateful that I had a wonderful conversation with my daughter on the phone yesterday. Um, so very specific. But it's what you're saying on, you know, you go to run a marathon and you stop before um, is when you start focusing on gratitude, um, that it becomes this incredible filter that your brain is then focused on, oh, I have to write three things tomorrow morning, maybe doing, you know, the 13 miles instead of the 15 miles, I'm actually, I, this is going to be what I'm grateful for. So it absolutely helps with shifting a mindset. Um, and there's a lot of, of data to support that people are happier when they write three specific things every day that they are grateful for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. And you're you're right. There was um when I came in, my son's name is Joshua. <clears throat> and he said, you know, did you finish? I said, No, I, I just did 13.1. You know, and it was kind of like no big deal. But you know, a few months ago, that would have been a really big deal because I I don't do that often. So I was like, Well, I still got a half in. So I was like, Yeah, okay. So I'm I'm, I'm a few miles off, but we'll get it figured out. And I think right. you're right. Just the, the, the yeah. perspective of, of moving that. Let me ask you, do you use any particular kind of journal? Or are you just getting like a notebook at Walmart? Or do you have like the five minute journal? What are you using that you can share with the audience? No, I just have a cheap journal from Walmart. Yep. It is nothing <laughs> fancy. The, uh, I just yeah. need a blank piece of paper. So it is fun <laughs> though. I, I will say, um, I keep them because what you were saying about high school, um, and having, you know, that those goals like written down in, in that journal from years ago, it's interesting to go back and reread some days that happened a couple months ago, a couple years ago, because again, it makes you realize how far you have come in life. And it makes you realize like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I was even worried about this on this particular day when my thoughts were all over the place about this silly incident that has now become the best thing that ever happened to me. And so having that like historical perspective really puts you back in the present time to realize how far that you've actually come. Mm -hmm. Two questions. How, how detailed are your journals? And then do you have any kind of ritual to go back and look at them like once a month or once a quarter or something, you know, during the holiday season? 
Yeah, so I don't have a ritual for going back and looking at them. Um, it just when I think about it, uh, I'll pull one out and and kind of look at it. The um, the detail depends on what's going on in my brain that day, because to someone else it may not even make sense, um, and uh, because I am kind of having a brain dump when I write in my journal. And it may be several sentences about something that happened, but then it may be a sentence on another thing that I'm worried about, or a sentence on something I'm proud of, or um, a sentence of what I need to remember to get at the grocery store. So it's all over the place because it's a reflection of what's going on in my head. And our minds are constantly giving us thoughts to that are telling us what to do, what to think about, etc. The um, so the the part that does really go into detail are what I'm saying about the gratitude that I always started out and number one, two, three, and write three specific things that happened in the last 24 hours that I'm grateful for. Yeah. And that, thank becomes, you for that. Yeah. Yeah. That it, it becomes, um, you know, everybody has heard like, hey, if you're buying a red car, that then all of a sudden you mm -hmm. drive down the road and everything, every car is red. Well, it, it's, not that every car is red or something changed. Mm -hmm. It's that your brain is now filtering and is seeing all these red cars because you're paying attention to it. So gratitude mm -hmm. practices like what I'm describing is exactly the same thing as planting the seed of that red car on the highway. And it mm -hmm. plants the seed that hey, everything, there's lots to be grateful for throughout the day. And my brain is going to pay attention to all of that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. I love that. And just taking a few minutes a day, one of the things that I'll say, and um, we'll, we'll keep on going, but uh, I started writing my prayers down a number of years ago. And that really forced me to slow down with prayers. You know, growing up, I would pray before I go to bed and fall asleep in the middle of the prayer and, you know, just do it when I was tired and things like that. But that, that's been an interesting exercise as well. And I have a stack of, of uh, journals and things like that, um, you know, where it is pretty powerful to, to go back and, and look at those things. So thank you for that journaling, uh, gratitude for sure. Uh, I know you exercise as well with jumping rope and things like that. So I'm sure that's part of your daily routine. I want to talk a little bit about resilience and those who are listening who may have a child who has chronic, uh, chronic illness of some sort uh, or some kind of diagnosis, you know, that is genetic in nature. Um, you may or may not know this about me already, but the I Can Do podcast uh, is a result of my heart condition. So I have uh, HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, mm -hmm. and I got diagnosed in, I think, 06 or 07. And then I had to get, um, uh, really for primary prevention, uh, defibrillator, implantable cardioverter mm -hmm. defibrillator. So I was 30 at the time, Dr. Marine, and that was tough. 
because I, I majored in kinesiology, um, always have loved fitness and exercise. So all of those different thoughts of like, man, like what is going to happen? You know, after I got my, my first defibrillator, it was about five or six weeks, and then you could start exercising again. And I went out for a jog and I fell on that first jog and I was like, oh no, you know, I just ruined this device and thankfully everything was okay. But uh, I can do really came from, uh, how do I figure this out? Um, I could be upset about this the rest of my life. I could be angry. I could be resentful. I could be bitter, but I can still run and I can still lift and I I can go to the, the mailbox and not be out of breath. A lot of people with HCM, that's, that's actually kind of a tough thing, you know, so I don't have any obstruction. And so it really came from, all right, I, I can still shift how I view this. And my faith certainly has played a big part with that as well um, to help me to get through this as well too. And now that I have a son, it's a genetic condition. So you've experienced a lot with your daughter, um, two big uh, diagnoses, um, six months old, 12 years old. Um, two questions. One, how is she doing right now? And then two, uh, what wisdom can you give to the audience for those who may have a child in a similar position? Yeah, so I will say my first, to answer your first question about how is she doing right now, she's now 23. She's an MD, PhD student wow. and <laughs> is studying autoimmune disease. And wow. I will not be surprised if she figures out how to fix type 1 diabetes. Um, wow. And, but that goes to exactly what you were just saying, that she had a lot of change in her life as a 12-year-old, all of a sudden having to worry about every piece of food you put in your mouth and um, be concerned that she wasn't counting carbs correctly to dose her insulin right and just a lot on her plate as a 12-year-old where other 12-year-olds are concerned about, you know, their BFF in the class or, you know, little Sally was mean to me today or whatever <laughs> it was. And mm -hmm. um, so it, she too was able to take something that I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy and really turn it into something that is a blessing and will be a blessing to the rest of the world. I'm, I'm confident of that. Mm -hmm. But the, um, you know, uh, to your second question, I, I will say, like, life ebbs and flows, and it always will. We're going to have good days, and we're going to have bad days. And that's just part of the human experience. But like what you went through and what my daughter went through and what I went through as a parent of my daughter, there's a process that we had to go through to get to the point of 
acceptance. And it's very similar to the stages of grief because what was really happening is when you got your diagnosis and when my daughter did that the life I thought I was going to have as a mom to my daughter or the life you thought you were going to have without your heart condition or the life my daughter thought she was going to have as a ballet dancer because she danced mm. hardcore ballet when she got diagnosed with diabetes. All of those mm. lives kind of died at the time of the diagnosis. And so it's then learning how to go through that grief to accept this new life with these challenges that are ahead of you. They're challenges, but it doesn't mean that you can't have a great, very full, complete, joyful life. It's, it's a challenge, and it's different than what you thought it was going to be, but it's still amazing and beautiful. And that's really what people need to to understand when they're faced with challenges with their kids is that there, it is a gift because it's an opportunity to learn. And yeah, maybe their life isn't the same life that they would have had, but right. it can be an even better life than what they thought. Yeah. I think that's a great point too to to really emphasize and thank you for sharing that. I'd love to have your daughter on the on the show and maybe even have an episode where you and your daughter come on. I think that'd be something really cool. What if like what you just said we could have even a a, a better life? And I know that sounds somebody may be listening. I don't know about all that, but there's a there's a passage in the Old Testament Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 where it says there's a time for everything under the sun. And, um, and we all experience that as, as just, as you said, you know, good days and challenging days and days of weeping and, uh, rejoicing and things like that. But it is amazing to hear your daughter's story. And I really appreciate you sharing that with her now being an MD and doing all of this research and how she's going to be able to, uh, impact, um, so many lives. I just think that's such a cool thing. And that's really the I can do mindset that I'm really trying to promote and talk about. I can do, so can you. Um, the Iron Man behind me is because Tony Stark had a piece of metal in his chest. So uh, he, that's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite uh, Marvel characters. So walk us through now. Your daughter's 23. Uh, you've served in the military, I believe you said 29 years. You've been a physician for at least a couple of decades, a lot longer. Um, a life coach as well. Reclaiming Life, a guide for parents uh, with uh, chronically ill children. When did the book, and that's a book you can find on Amazon.com. When did this book idea, where did that come from? And how long did that take to write? <laughs> that is <laughs> a funny question because of, and you'll understand why after I tell you kind of the story behind it. So the book idea um, came about years ago because my kids 
would always ask like, hey, mom, tell us a story of when this happened to Kylie or tell us a story about this particular thing because I don't remember it exactly. So the idea of the book really was to be a historical reference for my kids and the, my kids' kids and their kids, etc. Well, as I was really kind of ruminating on the idea of really taking on this adventure of writing the book, I realized, you know what? Our story can help other people not just be this historical reference. So the book is filled with stories of when Kylie went through um, chemo and surgery as an infant, stories of uh, her and type 1 diabetes, and then stories of patients that I took care of um, throughout my career. And each of the stories um, highlights a different topic like fear or guilt or overwhelm and, and really gives um, each chapter some tips that are very practical that parents can start implementing today. But so the funny part was I thought I'm going to crank this book out in a weekend because <laughs> all of these stories are like fresh on my mind. I, you know, tell them to my kids and I tell you, it was exhausting to write the book um, because telling those stories in detail for a reader to really understand what I was going through meant that I needed to mentally put myself back in that space. Mm. And so I would write a little bit and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to stop and take a break because I was like spent. And um, so it took several months, um, way longer than a weekend. But I will never forget when I wrote the last chapter and the very last sentence of the book, I closed my laptop and I just started crying. And mm. it was such a healing experience to write all of this and like really live and process the emotions along the way that I'm not sure I did such a great job of while mm. I was going through it. So mm. not only did I realize this book was going to help others, but it absolutely helped me to be able to finally like heal and say, you are good. Um, it was <laughs> such a joyful moment that I will never forget. Yeah. I can only imagine how that would be um, almost like therapy. Yeah. Uh, going back and, and living all of that over again. In your bio, it says that uh, you really like storytelling to help new physicians learn the art of medicine. Where did that come from? Um, it seems like you have a passion for storytelling. And 
tell us what does that look like um, when you have these residents and you're doing rounds or in the classroom or is it at lunches? What does this storytelling and teaching look like? Yeah, it's all of the above, actually, um, that, you know, I have realized in my own kind of educational career that I learn better if I have an example or a picture in my head rather than just memorizing words on a paper. So it through my studying, it was really um, figuring out stories or um, putting faces to a disease or putting faces to uh, a um, medication that really allowed it to stick. And that became kind of a gift so that when I'm lecturing or when we're chatting in the lunchroom or even on rounds, that uh, it is an ability to be able to recount a story of a patient so that the resident or fellow um, can remember the right thing to do next time they see whatever we're talking about. Mm. So would you say then like, you know, notes and things like that, when you were going to school, were you, were you drawing pictures and things like that? I've seen some oh, different sure. ideas. Yeah. You were doing that. So could yeah. you talk about faces and things like that? Yeah. And, mm. and, and I would also use and create a lot of like mnemonics to remember things. So like taking the first letter of a list that I had to memorize and come up with a little crazy sentence to be able to remember like all the gram negative bacteria and coming up with some crazy sentence on how to remember that. So it was, I'm just not a good memorizer when it's just something I read in a book, I really need to um, manipulate that data to allow it to stick. Um, whether mm. it be, you know, writing it, drawing it, coming up with crazy stories about it or, or real stories about it. But some way that material needs to be like worked so that it sticks yeah, that's so fascinating. There's a book called Walking with Einstein. And it's about a reporter who uh, did, a, uh, did a story on the USA Memory Championships. There's actually a thing, and there's, there's actually quite a few of them throughout the world. And so he ended up getting into the contest and winning it <laughs> like a year later. But he talks about like memory palaces and you know, it's always interesting, like even now, like if you lived in your, you know, if you had a house when you were growing up, you could probably close your eyes and walk someone through that house and see every room. And he talked a lot about that as well. Is that what's going on in your head? Like, do you have like memory palaces, like where you can, I know you're having stories and, and lines and things like that, but do you also, are you seeing things like these images and things like that to, when you, when you need to recall something? Oh, for sure. For sure. Wow. Now, the I I will say 
I don't have like a photographic mind where I can mm -hmm. look at a paper and know where something is on a paper. It's more like pictures that float gotcha. in my mind with, with um, words or phrases or um, diagnoses, that sort of thing. That's really cool. That is so cool. Who is one of your favorite storytellers? Books, movies, music, you're into stories. Uh, uh, who, who catches your attention? I'm going to have to say Taylor Swift because she <laughs> like just comes to my mind. I've been to 11 Taylor Swift concerts and I, I adore her. Really? Oh, yes. Wow. Did you All, go to this only because of my daughter. She's the real yeah, Taylor yeah. Swift fan. Ah, but, I see. <laughs> but no, I did not get lucky enough to go to the Eras tour. Um, ah, the, I got you. Uh, but the, uh, I, the thing I like about her is her ability to take a, a story that has happened to her and create this beautiful piece of music that when somebody hears that song, that they're really feeling what she felt at the time. And mm. that is a gift, whether you really like Taylor Swift or not, doesn't <laughs> matter. She's a quite a gifted musician. Yeah. Yeah. Full disclosure. I do have some Taylor Swift on my, um, on my music on my uh, iPhone. Favorite song of Taylor Swift. You got one? Um, love story. Love story. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I know that one. Yeah. I just saw she became a, she's a, officially a billionaire now. So and it's surprised. crazy how, yes. yeah, it's amazing how she's like re-recording all of her songs so she can have, you know, all of the rights and things like that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Maureen, what's next? And I, before you answer that question, I got to ask you this question. You got a busy schedule. I can already, at least I think you do. I could be totally wrong. Uh, do you drink caffeine? Like, what are you doing to stay on top of all of this? Uh, do you have a particular planner? Um, do you have a team? Help me out with all of this because you're doing a lot. <laughs> I need to know. So I do drink coffee in the morning and uh, I love coffee. Um, the But I'm very good about not drinking too much caffeinated coffee through my life. And it's really, uh, you know, I now teach parents who have a lot on their plate how to manage their time. And it's doing a great job of keeping a very good calendar and uh, allowing yourself at the beginning or maybe even the end of a week, but writing everything down that needs to get done and plugging it into your calendar then and there, rather than just kind of flying by the seat of your pants on, um, you know, what you're going to do next. So that for sure has really helped. You talk a lot about worry and feeling overwhelmed and things like that. What does your schedule look like? And I'll just, I don't have it here. It's actually on the floor, but I have, I use a Michael Hyatt's uh, full focus planner, full which I focus, really enjoy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
how do you rest? And by that, I mean, what does that look like for you? Do you take weekends off? Do you take a sabbatical? Do you save up vacation uh, for, you know, quarterly getaway? What does rest look like for you? Um, I love that you asked that question because one of the things that I think parents, especially when you have a chronically ill kid, struggle with is rest. Um, And what you're alluding to is how important rest is. That uh, just like you and training for your marathon, you need rest days to allow your muscles to recover. Same with when you're using your brain, you need time to rest um, to allow your brain to rejuvenate and recover. I yeah. do it in a couple of different ways. Um, the um, you know, during the day, I spend at least 12 minutes. And the only reason I know it's 12 minutes is because of the little app that I use um, of meditating. Um, I also, um, when I'm full into doing doctor coaching stuff, I'll take a break from that and play cello. I play cello mm. like I'm a fifth grader, but <laughs> I um, doing something different with a different area of my brain is helpful to kind of get away from that worry and overwhelm. Exercise too is super important because of the, um, you know, there's a lot of hormones that get released when you exercise and that helps your brain. I do take vacations. I love doing stuff outside of work on the weekends. And I have learned you don't feel guilty about it, that you need it as a parent, you need it as a person to reset and you're not going to be able to really give to others unless your own cup is full. Like we've all flown it on airplanes and on airplanes, they all say like, put on your oxygen mask before you help somebody else. And you have to do that with rest. Um, somebody recently that I was talking to was saying that there's a difference between self-care and self-indulgence and understanding mm-hmm. that those two are, are different um, is important um, because self-care should be part of everyone's priority on a regular basis, self-indulgence is different as, um, yeah, you can indulge in, in activities or, you know, a spa day or, or that um, even going to a spa may not rejuvenate someone. Um, so it, it doesn't need to be this huge length of time. It needs to be a time when your brain can refocus and reset. Mm, thank you. How do you say no, N-O, 
And by that, I mean, uh, it sounds like some of your children may be out of the house or maybe all of them. I don't know. But when your daughter was going through the medical issues and scares, um, certainly you have to have boundaries and things like that. How did you and how do you currently say no? And what recommendation do you have for the audience of, you know, just creating healthy boundaries where we've talked about guilt uh, a few times already, and there's certainly guilt with hey, I want to do all these sports, Uh, I want to go to all these events, Um, or even for the parents. So what did that look like for you saying no? I would say no. So simple. (laughs) It it truly is. And you are, you're absolutely correct. The hard part is not saying it. The hard part is saying it and then not feeling bad that you said it. So it, again, needs to be kind of a mind shift where um, you're staying true to yourself, which is why you're saying no to something. Um, When somebody is a people pleaser that, and they say, yes, I'll do that. I'll do this. I'll I'll do, you know, X, Y, and Z. Really the person who's getting um, harmed or getting the rejection, the no, is their own self in that, right? They're losing themselves because they're trying to please somebody else. And understanding that is very helpful to make that guilt kind of go away when you say no and you stick to your boundaries. The um, It is hard because, and I would tell you, it, it's tough and I work with um, parents of other diabetic kids now who go through this too because with type 1 diabetes, you know, especially around Halloween, right? Candy is everywhere. And if my daughter like nonstop was eating candy, that she, her pancreas doesn't work to produce the insulin to manage that blood sugar that is caused by that piece of candy. So she could get a very high blood sugar just from, you know, having all this Halloween candy in a day. There needed to be boundaries to be able to keep her healthy, you know, when she was younger. And parents struggle with that because they feel like, oh, I want my kid to be the same as other kids who don't have to worry if they're, you know, going and eating candy all day. But it's going back to the realization of it's no, and this boundary is there because I love you. It's not there because I want to make your life harder. I am putting this boundary here that you can't have this candy all day because I love you and want to keep you healthy. And so when we create these kind of boundaries out of a place of love and peace, rather than this place of panic, that Mm. the guilt doesn't go along with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Well, I think I could talk to you, Dr. Maureen, for a couple of hours. I know I said one hour. Um, I still have some more questions. Can I ask you? Can I ask you another question? 
absolutely. What family traditions did you have or currently have to foster, you know, closeness and communication? Was it eating dinner? Was it Friday night pizza? Was it, you know, what, what did that look like for you and your house? Yeah, so certainly, you know, dinner times were very important. I would say when when you ask that question, the very first thing that came to mind, um, and it may be that it's on my mind because it's coming up. So I love Christmas lights, love mm. Christmas lights, and mm. love having a Christmas tree up that I could watch the lights on the tree. Like I'm mesmerized by that. Right. But the, I was always bummed because it felt like December was so short and the tree would be up. I would enjoy the lights and then you'd take it down, you know, come the first of the year. The, um, I many years ago, realized, well, who says you can't put it up earlier? So I set up a Christmas tree right after Halloween, and it is a Thanksgiving tree. So we have a turkey that goes on the top of the tree, and the ornaments are um, ornaments that we add to every year that everybody writes down what they're grateful for. So it's Mm a tree of, of gratitude. And along with these lights are all of these ornaments of what everyone in the family is grateful for. And again, it's almost like looking back at a journal that all of these ornaments we've had for years now, you look back on, well, what did he say that he, you know, was grateful for this year? What did he say a couple years ago? It is such a wonderful thing. Like, I love mm-hmm. it. I love this time of year because I know the tree is getting ready to go <laughs> up. And then once Thanksgiving comes, we take down all of that stuff the decorations and, you know, put the angel on top of the tree and the traditional Christmas stuff. But Thanksgiving, like that is, that's my jam now. (laughs) My wife, Nikki, will absolutely love you because that is exactly what she, and I need to do this. Thank you for that. You you have now pushed me. Um, I won't let the worry sit in, but we got to get a new tree (laughs) out here. But she started doing that, I think, a couple of years ago, like a fall tree. And then, you know, we just we take it down and things like that. So thank you for that reminder. I got to I got to get on the ball with that. Get Uh, on it. I got to get out of that. What's next for you, Dr. Maureen? You have your book. Um, You sound like you have a very blessed life. Uh, Practice, practice, coaching. What is next? Yeah, so it is helping more families to really go through a journey of life in an easier way than I was able to have. And I uh, 
would love to continue to do that through my um, coaching business, but I've also um, really want to do that through speaking at conferences and uh, through different organizations. So that part I am working on now too. Good. Where can people find you? So my website is MaureenMichelleMD.com. And the Michelle is spelt with one L. Um, I'm also on Instagram as Maureen Michelle MD um, on Instagram. Those are the easiest ways to find me. Um, of course, my book, like you said, is on Amazon. That's called Reclaiming Life by Maureen Michelle MD. Awesome. This has been a, a great pleasure for me. I really appreciate your team reaching out to to me. And um, thank you for um, taking the time to, to be on the I Can Do podcast. You definitely have an I Can Do heart and mindset. And thank you for the great things you're doing um, throughout the world. Final thought for the audience. My final thought is I want people to know that it will be okay, that you will have challenges and that the challenge is there as a gift, but it will be okay in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and share your story and allow me to poke holes in your thought process about <laughs> marathon training. It's been super fun. So I, I am grateful for you and for your listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I can do, so can you. Keep going strong. Talk to you later.